Kind of a funny story. Uh, do, do your kids ever draw you stuff that doesn't make sense to you? And when you see it, you're like, honestly, a lot of times when my kids draw me pictures, I, I don't, it looks like, you know, a couple of faces, but one always looks angry. And I'm like, are you mad at me? Is there something deeper we need to talk about? But I got these, uh, I, was, I forgot them. I was going to bring them in and show them to you. But uh, we have four children and our, uh, our youngest daughter, uh, who's five, Emery, came to me this morning at breakfast and she gave me these, um, she kind of like threw these like, you know, kind of pieces of paper at me. They're all kind of crumbled up. And so I was like, hey, what, what? And I was in prayer outside on a little patio, kind of hung the moment with God this morning. And anyways, and so she comes out and she gives me this little drawing and markers and it's all kind of colored. I said, well, I opened up one. And I was like, what is this? And I totally forgot it at the house. I was going to show you. And it was this, uh, I'm telling you, this most awkward looking snowman. She's like, that's a snowman. I was like, oh, that's great. And so I opened the next one, and it was a sticker of a lightning bolt. And I'm guessing because we were watching the lightning game last night. Only the first two periods, and then I was like, we're going to bed. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but anyways, um, and so and then there was a third picture, and I was like, well, what, is, what is this? And she was like, and I'm not kidding. She goes, that's a wall. So I'm sitting in prayer, having time with God, and I'm like, okay, Lord, snowman, lightning, wall. You're trying to tell me something here? Like, what is this? And no big revelation came, but immediately I felt like the, the Holy Spirit downloaded something into my heart, and maybe this is for you. So if you're a dad and this is for you, I hope you take this. If this is a word from God for you, take it. But immediately I had this thought, and I hope that maybe for some of you feel encouraged by this. My wife comes outside, and this thought just overcomes me, and it's like, man, this is what it's like, I think, to God sometimes. Like little children, we bring him what, you know, because Emery was smiling. She's like, yeah, like, you, you know, she's just so proud of it, you know. And, you know, and, and when you're seeing the drawing, you're trying to like fake it and be like, oh, that's awesome. Like a snowman, a wall, and a lightning bolt. This is fantastic. And then she closed the glass door and she had this big smile on her face. Like she accomplished something great. And yet, it was not great. Like it's weird and awkward. And it was just, but, you know, that's all true, right? Like the, the actual drawing it makes sense. A snowman, a lightning bolt, and a wall. Like, you know, but, but I think that's what, like, God looks at us like. Like, I told my wife, I said, this is kind of like how God is, I think, with us. Like, what do you really have to offer God that, that actually kind of stands a chance? Like, not much, you know, because he has everything. But then when we give him our best, he smiles upon us. And so I hope this blesses you this morning. And I just wrote this statement down. When we give the Lord our best, he's pleased with us. And so here's what I want you to know. If you're giving God your best, can you just know that he's pleased with you today? That sometimes we feel like we have to draw like a perfect picture. We have to do something that kind of makes sense to get him to smile upon us. But I hope this just encourages you that if you're just giving God your best, and sometimes your best is just getting up and reading your Bible for two minutes. Sometimes your best is, you know, just praying for a few seconds. Like something, just your best. Can I just tell you today that God smiles upon us when we give him our best? And even when you give him your best, can I just tell you, remind you, I think sometimes our best is a snowman, a wall, and, and you know, a lightning bolt. And he's like, that's the best? Okay, I'll deal with it. And he just smiles upon that. You know, scripture says he remembers that we're dirt. Right, like he knows on your best day, you're still dirt. And so I just think there's something beautiful in that, that you don't always have to do like the most perfect thing for God. So for all my perfectionists out there, just, just remember, God just smiles upon you when you just give him 
your best. And so if you're giving God your best, I just want you to know today he's smiling upon you. Amen. I hope you receive that today. All right, Galatians chapter three, we're in a series called Bless This House. And uh, this is our third week, right, in our new facility. And it's just been an, an incredible to jump into this new place. We're trusting God to bless it. And so we're excited. Uh, but Galatians chapter three, if you have your Bible, you can actually see it now because we have lights on. So that's good. And um, and then your notes as well. And so go study this later. I encourage you to do that. Galatians chapter 3. All right, so Paul is writing to his church in Galatia. I'm going to kind of get you up to speed on this particular chapter. In chapter 3, he's writing about two key words. And so if you're taking notes at the very bottom of your notes, I left some space there for you. He's addressing really the issue between law and faith. Now, when I talk about law, or when Paul talks about law, he's talking about Jewish law. You can go mentally and say, okay, I'm going to go to the Old Testament Go back to your first few books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Go back to those couple of books. If you go read through Leviticus and you read about all these laws, when he's talking about law, that's what we're talking about. And then he's talking about faith. Because to the church in Galatia, you have a number of people. You have people who are Jewish people who have not accepted Christ as the Messiah. They did not believe that he is the the savior of the world. Uh, Then you have some in Galatia who are Gentiles. They're not Jewish people, but they're starting to believe following the way. So if you were in biblical times and you were following Jesus, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You would call yourself a follower of the way. And so uh, you're a follower of the way and you're kind of new to faith, trying to learn this whole thing. And then there were some who were Jewish Christians, Jews who returned to Christianity in a sense. They had turned to followers of the way. And so there's this argument, if you would, there's these debates about how much of the law we should keep and how much of the law that we don't have to keep. And so Paul's addressing this tension of law and faith. And that's where Paul is going to be addressing what he's going to be dealing with. And so he teaches about how faith makes us righteous, that it's not the law that makes us righteous, which was a brand new concept for people. And he's like, it's faith that makes us right before God. And so here's what he says in verse 7. Powerful statement in Galatians 3 verse 7. He says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham, he says. Those who have faith are children of Abraham. If you just circle the word children, I think that's a powerful statement. It says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel, which is an interesting word. He uses the word gospel here, in advance to Abraham. So here's the gospel in advance, right? Now you say, well, wait, wait a second, where's the gospel here? Here's the gospel. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In Genesis chapter 12, this is important to know, so if you want to write up to the side, Genesis chapter 12, God gives Abraham and Sarah a blessing. And he tells them before they have children, so this is a childless couple, they have no children, he says, you're going to have many children, and every nation on the planet earth, every nation in the world will be blessed through you. That's a powerful blessing to somebody who doesn't have children, trying to have children, can't have children. He says, you're going to be a blessing to many people. This is the promise that God gives Abraham and Sarah. So that's a promise that we anchor into. 
And the Jews, to a Jewish person, they thought they were blessed because they were part of that lineage. They were part of Abraham. They were were a Jew. They associated with that. They were an Israelite by family, by heritage. And so they somehow inherited this right standing relationship with God simply being a Jew. And this is what they're debating. This is their argument. But Paul is saying, no, that's not it. Just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're automatically a part of this family that he's going to address in a minute. He's saying, no, it's faith that connects us to the blessing. So the Abraham blessing, I will bless you, that promise, that anchor is not just for the Jew. It's not just for Gentile. It's for all people through a faith. And that's an important word we're going to unpack in just a minute. So this is a really powerful, powerful statement today. You're going to walk out here, I believe, blessed, uh, understanding uh, this one word. By the way, I titled the message, message, understanding Abba. Okay, understanding Abba. All right, so. All right, so verse 23, he goes on to say, uh, before the coming of this faith, we'll unpack that word in just a minute, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian. That's an interesting statement too. Until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. All right, now let's unpack this. All right, I will help you hopefully make sense out of this, these verses. All right, so Paul gives an example here that's really important. He uses the word guardian. So as parents, we we get this because you have to sign some things for your children. It says parent or guardian. All right, in this context, Paul is using this as an example to illustrate the context of the law. What the law was, are you following me on this? There's the law. I'll make sure you get this. You get the law. And these are the 613 laws you need to follow. And he equates a guardian to the law. That's what he's doing. In this context, you have people who oftentimes they had slaves. And slaves oftentimes would act as a guardian to the children. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, you have parents who brought the child to life. They gave the life because they had the child and bore the child. And so they're the ones who provided the life for the child. But there was a guardian. And the guardian oftentimes was a slave. And the slave would train the child, teach the child, sometimes educate the child. Discipline the child in some cases as well. That's what a guardian would do. So the guardian protected the child, matured the child, helped the child grow. But ultimately, the guardian didn't provide life to the child. What is Paul doing here when he says this statement about guardian and law? He's simply saying the law is kind of like a guardian. It matures you. It shapes you. It grows you. It disciplines you but it doesn't give you eternal life. In other words, just by obeying the law doesn't provide you eternal life. It is there as a tool to help you grow and to mature. That is the purpose, fundamental reason for the law. Because we're not justified by the law, he says, we're justified by faith. So the purpose of the guardian was to mature. The purpose of the law was to grow us until the promise had arrived. Then he says, Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. What's the guardian? The law. So we're not under the law. We're no longer under the guardian. So there's a shift there. But Paul is not saying there, then what's the point of the law? Do we even need to read through the Old Testament? Do we need all these laws? To which Paul would say, yeah, the laws laws still stand in a way, but they're not doing what you thought they were doing. But there is still use for the law. His point is, he's saying that the law cannot change the promise. What's the promise? Abraham, 
you're going to be blessed. And through you, all nations will be blessed and all people will be blessed. In other words, there will be a time that comes that all generations will be blessed by what I do. The law doesn't bless them. It's the promise that holds it together. But the law actually works along together with the promise that ultimately brings sinners to the Savior. If you want to know kind of what's the whole purpose of the law, if you go read through Leviticus, if you ever anybody read through Leviticus before anyone, okay, I didn't think so. Most of you are like, no, never wanted to read through that. How many of you attempted to read through Leviticus and then you went, I think I should go to something more important? Okay, a couple of honest people. All right. And then most of you didn't raise your hand, so this is a perfect sermon for you. Okay, if you're like, did I go to the right church today? You did, because you need to read through Leviticus. You say, why? Listen, Leviticus is a book of laws, lots and lots of laws. You go through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you're going to read so many different laws. You'll be like, that's crazy. Can't wear polyester, can't shave your sideburns, can't have tattoos, what? All these things that you're going to read about in Leviticus. These are people who tried to live according to all of those laws. And they never could. They tried. I mean, they really tried really hard. And so you just, you get this picture when you read through the Old Testament, when you read through some of these laws, you realize just how important this life was and people who try to obtain and attain right standing with God by doing all of these things. And so Paul is saying those things are, are good. There's, there's kind of a place for them. But ultimately, those laws don't give us righteousness. They don't give us life. The whole purpose of the law was ultimately to do this one thing. If you ever want to know why, why were laws given here, here's why the law was given. Here's why Old Testament was given. Here's to point people ultimately to Jesus, the necessity of a Savior, that there was no way somebody could do this on their own. If you don't believe me, go read Leviticus and then try to do everything that Leviticus says to do. Now, don't go kill the animals because that might get you arrested today, but just try to do all the other things. Like, you just, you're not going to be able to obtain it. And so Jesus addresses the same issue in Mark chapter 10. Right off to the side, right somewhere, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, Jesus uh, has an encounter with a, a man called the rich young ruler. That's how it's kind of subtitled. He has this conversation with this young man who's wealthy, and in this, conversa- in this conversation, you know, this man has done a lot of the law keeping, he's done a good job, he's had good provision, he's, he's had a good house, he's got cars, he's got what he needs, and, and shows up, and he has this conversation with Jesus, and Jesus makes this powerful statement. He says, you know, you've given everything, but here's the one thing you haven't given. You know, yeah, you've gotten all these laws, you've done a lot, no, no question about it, but there's a couple things you haven't done. And the guy realizes, yeah, I'm not as good as I thought I was. That's ultimately that kind of the picture you get in this story. He's just not as good as he thought he was, but gosh, he's done a lot, but he still doesn't really have holiness in of himself. And then Jesus makes this statement that a lot of people use and take out of context, and he says, what's impossible with man's possible with God. His reason for making that statement isn't to say, I can do, you know, anything I want. Like, I can fly if I want to fly, you know, I can just flap my arms and I'll fly around because I'm, anything's possible with God. No, his, his statement is saying, there's something impossible for man. What is that? You'll never obtain perfection on your own. But with me, Jesus says, it's possible. You can become perfect, holy, blameless because of me. That's his whole point of Mark chapter 10. 
helping this rich young ruler who has obeyed all these laws and done all these things, helping him understand these laws are good. They're there to mature you, disciple you, help train you up. Yeah, there's some goodness into that. But ultimately, the only way you have right standing is with me. And that's why what's impossible with man is possible with God. And I've come to make a way that you could have righteousness and right standing with God without having to fulfill the law. This is the case that Paul is trying to make. So Paul continues his case, his argument, if you would. Verse 26, so he says, So in Christ Jesus, this is amazing. He says, you are all children of God through faith. We're going to unpack that. He says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, compared to what was being taught amongst the, Gal- the Galatians at that time, this is revolutionary statement. This is a brand new statement. If you're sitting in that culture, that context, and you hear and you read some man named Paul write this, that you're all children of God through faith, and you're a Jew, you're thinking that's heresy, that is false, that's not true, because only Jews are children of God. Only Jews, only those who are associated with Abraham. But Paul is making a declaration that all People, all children of God through faith, to all of you who were baptized. I'll come to that in just a minute. Who's a child of God? Many people are tempted to say, well, I'm a child of God. And the answer is yes and no, maybe. And I'll unpack that in just a second too, because he says you're all children of God through faith. So you have to have faith in order to be a child of God. We'll talk about that in just a second. So to be truly close to God, considered, someone call them sons of God. You might read that through scripture sometimes. Sons of God or sons and daughters of God or children of God. That just means there's this close relationship. It's not measured by your obedience to the law. His whole point is your proximity to Jesus, your proximity to God, to the Father, your access to him is not based on your obedience to the law. It's based on something called faith. So here Paul says we can be considered sons of God in a completely different way through faith in Jesus Christ. So the word faith should matter to us a lot what the word faith means. The word faith in Greek is the word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. And it simply means conviction, conviction of the truth of anything, or you could really relate it to the word trust, included the idea of trust. You've got to anchor into that. Some people say, oh, I have faith in God. Many people, when they say, you say the word faith, you'll hear, hey, do you have faith in God? Yeah, I have faith People typically think of the idea of belief. I have a belief in God, that I just believe he's there. You've got to shift, and that is so deceiving, which I actually think is, in a sense, from the enemy, where he plays that in our culture of using the wrong words. We take this word faith, and we take it to imply belief. Faith does not mean belief. Faith implies trust. So if you have faith in Christ, you're really saying, I trust what he says. That changes everything. Because you can't say, I believe in God and say, I have faith. No, you can believe in him. That's true. That's good. But that's not ultimately what deems you a child of God. What deems you a child of God is your trust in God. And all of a sudden, the word trust changes it. Because now trust involves action. Trust involves response. So he's simply saying this word faith carries this idea of including the idea of trust. According to Paul, to become a son of God or a daughter of God through faith in Christ Jesus means much more than believing he exists or did certain things. He died on the cross. I believe he died on the cross. That's great. That's good that you believe that occurred. 
but that doesn't mean you are now in the family of God. That's whole, Paul's whole point. Just because you believe it, there's this idea of faith and trust in what he did for you. It's to put our trust in him both now and eternity. So evidently, according to Paul, this is important, to be among the son of God or a child of God, that means that we have a special relationship with God, a loving, caring father, this close proximity, this intimacy with God. And there's this amazing relationship that Paul is saying can occur, that's available to you and to me and to all people if you simply place your trust in him. And a key word that you go back into verse 27, he says, to all of you who were baptized, you were baptized, you're immersed. And then he uses this idea of clothing, clothe yourselves with Christ. What is he saying? Why is he saying that? He's simply saying, listen, this special relationship happens with people who have been baptized. Does this mean just like people have been baptized? If he, if he just said just baptism alone, he wouldn't have added the clothing themselves in Christ. But he adds the clothing themselves in Christ to be symbolic for what happens when you're baptized. Here's the point. He's saying, if you want to know of a person who has faith, this is the person who's been baptized. Oh, I've been baptized. All right, baptism is good. That's good. But it goes beyond baptism. Because if you just baptize somebody without them really understanding what it is that they're doing, then they won't know how to put and clothe themselves with Christ. So it's really these two things working together. It's a person who's been baptized, but also clothes himself in Christ. What is to clothe himself in Christ? Well, in this context, in this culture, these Greek phrases would have meant or implied the idea of putting on a suit. So some of the men, of course, you go off to work. Maybe some of you have to wear a suit, or some of you, you know, put just half suit on because you're in Zoom or whatever, and then whatever below you is below you. But, uh, yeah, I'm in a suit. But, you know, but this idea of putting on a suit I'm putting on Christ. I'm clothing myself in Christ. And here's what he's getting at. Here's his whole point. If you want to be called the child of God, if you want to be adopted into the family of God, you've got to, one, make sure that you have faith. That is trust in God. But then you reveal the trust in God through baptism, giving your life to Christ, being buried with Christ and resurrected with Christ. And now you have Christ inside of you. And when Christ is inside of you, you're going to walk around clothed in Christ. That means the clothes you wear represent the person that's inside of you. Clothing matters, by the way. I don't know if you know that because a lot of times we do this in our culture, right? Clothing matters. You go to an interview, you dress a certain way. You go on your first date, you dress a certain way. Then on, after marriage, you're kind of like, you know, whatever you want to do. You know what I mean? Because all of a sudden, the clothing doesn't matter as much as it did in one's first time because we, we judge people. We gauge people by their clothing. So Paul is writing to a context still in the same culture. Clothing matters. Clothing reveals something about you. And so his whole point is saying, hey, the way you live your life should represent Christ in a certain way. These are the people of faith. He's probing at this whole point about how they live their life. Then he makes a massive statement. I'm going to teach on this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. He says, nor nor is there male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to what? The promise. If you circle the word promise, what promise is he referencing? Genesis chapter 12. I will bless you. I'll make you among my people. You will be with me. This is a blessing. And the blessing was spoken back to Abraham and you receive the same blessing that Abraham received. That is his whole point, and it's all driven through faith. Now, I want to 
I put this in my notes. It's kind of a side derail for just a minute, but I just felt prompted to share this today. Paul says we're all one in Christ Jesus, right? He clearly says it, verse 28, 29. We're all one in Christ Jesus. What he is not saying is not removing identity and differences. All right, I need you to see this. That would contradict scripture that clearly supports the idea of male and female. In many contexts, this is a verse that people use to argue towards changing genders and that gender doesn't matter to God. In our world today, this is an important topic because it's being talked about all over the place about gender and gender and gender and transgender and all these things. I just want you to know that God still sees male and female. He's not breaking down or removing the walls and identities of, oh, it doesn't matter, male or female. No, no such thing as male or female anymore because God said, no more male, female. That's not what he's saying. What is he getting at? And I know I'm pushing on it, but I've got to get to the truth in our culture so that hopefully you can teach and educate in 